David Gensler. Hello. Nice Hi. to see you. Thank you for being on the Ponytail Show. It's like I'm so stoked to have you on because like your career path, what you've built, everything is just kind of blows my mind because like um, I think what sets you apart from a lot of people in the industry is your big picture kind of way of seeing things, seeing the machinery of how things, the bigger picture of how things work. And I think your kind of philosophical approach um, is really interesting in terms of building brand, uh, building, yeah, building spaces online and physical. So yeah, um, for, for folks who might not know what you're about, um, let's just start with um, an intro on you and what you're doing right now, then we'll circle back from there. <laughs> thank you for that. Um, and thank you for having me on the, I mean, I'm a designer. That's how I see myself. Um, everything I do is just design. I, I came up in design first in photography. And then I, I went to art center in California. And then that introduced me to graphics and, and advertising and everything else. And then I focused in industrial design. And it was in an era where I was really following guys like Mark Newson, mm-hmm. who I saw a lecture on him. And I was just, and just so blown away by his work. And he had said, if you can design a toothbrush, you know, you can design an airplane, you can design jackets, you can design shoes, you can design, you know, trash cans or tables. And, and I was like, yeah, I want to design airplane, toothbrush, table jackets. Like, yeah. Yeah. And, and, uh, and so that kind of like planted the seed that we could do, we could do anything. And then, then the career started in back in Philadelphia, actually in in Los Angeles at some amazing ad agencies, um, in the heyday, like like my first, my first internship was at Shiat Day. And it it was just this iconic, like Mm. universe of this creative, you know, machine. And so I went from making imagery and telling stories with photography to, um, to industrial design and understanding how to engineer things and kind of create them from scratch Mm. to back to kind of telling big stories and advertising. And then I moved to Philadelphia, um, and eventually went to, to business school there. And because I saw it as design, I saw it as I kept, I kept going into meetings and this, um, when, you know, when you're young and you just don't know what you shouldn't do or what you can't do, yeah, or you don't know when you're biting off too much. And I just wanted to eat everything. Like I wanted, like, I thought nothing could stop me and I wanted to create worlds, entire universes. And so I kept realizing 
kind of like when you're a designer and you just you you realize that you need another tool mm. that not understanding business was like another whole drawer in the toolbox yeah that wasn't there and and then eventually I went back to school for um for economics which very different than business was even more of the realization that there was there was tools missing you know there was there were things missing so it was this but it's all just design i mean like there's been strategist on the business card because i end up for the most part i i design for myself mm-hmm. like i design for myself because i don't want a client or i don't like a client <laughs> say like critiquing the design so i'll just design myself and um the the thought pro you know the thought process of designing for somebody else is crazy it's you know the let's say it's a jacket you know that every part of that thing is just exactly how you want it and then you'll show it to them and they'll be like no the collar's this or and you're like what why does your opinion you know like Unless it's like the owner of the company, it's just like one subjective opinion. It's just another a v- cog in the system. And what what kind of credentials do they have to make critique on on this thing that they're a part of? Um, I have the a first, question. Right, the first, the, the yeah. first thing that you do though is you look at because it's fashion. You look at what they're wearing. <laughs> And you're kind of like, nah. <laughs> so, like, so judgy. <laughs> right now, but I'm like, you know, I'm not, you know, yeah, I mean, yeah. if, it was like Alex, if it was like Alexander McQueen being like, I don't like your coat, I'd be like, my coat sucks. But <laughs> yeah, if, yeah. if it's just like, you know, a, a, a general manager at Adidas, I'm like, yeah, you should maybe, yeah, you know, keep those opinions to yourself. But so like when you sell strategy and you're working with strategy, it's it's a lot more objective. Mm. And so I got pretty good at developing very effective strategies for very, very big brands. Um, and so I, I'm a strategist for others and a designer for myself. Right. So. Um, I'm wondering, like, did you go to school for industrial design? Because you said before, like, you kind of, when you're young, you don't really have like this, you know, you, anything is possible and you don't have this kind of set of rules of what you can and can't do for a task. Whereas I feel like sometimes when you go to design school, that can happen, like especially with fashion design, there are, you, you, you kind of are told what you can and can't do with, with, you know, with the medium. Um, like, yeah. Did you, did you study formally for, the design part or was that self I studied industrial design um, at Art Center and I mean I'll give Art Center credit it's it's just there were no there was nothing like that there were no rules that's rad like, there, there were no like I mean I started out reading Zen and the art of archery mm. and like practicing archery and I could, you know, I couldn't, if you've read that book, it, it's, it's a phenomenal, very small little read, but it was just this whole idea of, um, 
and I was at a lot of other schools. Like I, I had a lot of other great places with great mm. teachers and, and, and great intentions, but there it was just this environment where, um, and at that time I was a very different version of myself. I was very mm. quiet and I was very observant. You know, now I'm this like loud, I'm very, still very quiet and very introverted and, I don't think people would really take me as introverted, but I'm really introverted. And the, but there I was just completely quiet and I would observe everything and I would, I would steal classes. Um, I would. How do you steal a class? You steal a class by just, by, by asking instructors if you can sit in, you're not really stealing it, but you're not, it's not going for credit. And, um, I, I sat in so many classes that at one point I, um, I was with somebody at the time and it felt like we just weren't together. Like I lived, I would like physically sometimes like just live, live there. And, um, cause the school was just open 24 hours a day and I would just stay there constantly and like work on stuff at night. And it was funny. I would. I lived in Pasadena, and Art Center sits at the top of a hill. And I, I would. I had a little teeny fifty cc scooter, and and everybody else there had um, like nice cars or like Jaguars or like. And you're like. Kids would, I, would, I would. Me. <laughs> like go up this hill on a scooter, and there hey, they're these, fun though. Scooters are really fun, especially when you go through the forest. This was just a really, really big hill <laughs> that like a really huge, long, long hill going to the school. And this scooter was just not meant to go up this hill. And but I didn't have any money, so there was no other way to. And I'm, I'm not, I can't remember if there was buses there, but I don't remember. And I just think I used to time it where I would try to get there so early that like nobody would see me going up the hill on the scooter. Uh, and yeah, try but no, it just gave me, it gave me this, um, it gave me this, this confidence that you can do. I mean, it was more like listening to a Mark Newson speech, um, a lecture on, just we can do anything like you, you kind of got this sense that and especially during that time in the in the 90s, it was like there were design superheroes. Mm. Oh, there were there were um, the Philippe Starks and Mark Newson and Karen yeah. um, Rashid and 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 all of these like just superstars of design. And the second that. I fell in love with fashion was when I actually saw Mark Newson begin doing fashion mm. stuff. And when he first started doing the very early um, collaboration with G star, I was, I was blown away by it because for me, he was such a rock star. And then um, I was, I really got into um, Puma doing these, these collaborations. I'm smiling. I'll, you'll explain why in a second. I really, really got into Puma doing the collaborations with Mahara and, uh, uh, um, Mahara, my buddy. Yeah. 
so he's he's just on some other other level yeah and so him and mcqueen doing the puma stuff and but i was really into the early collaborations with uh with puma and this is jumping forward but at the time where i was at rockefeller and and i was one of my partners biggs who's who's still a friend um he was one of the three founders of Rockefeller. He would just end Damon Dash. They would snap on me constantly because everybody would just wear white Air Force Ones. Like at that time, if you didn't wear a pair of white Air Force Ones, they better be black Air Force Ones. Like yeah, right. that were the option. So a white one. I guess you could wear a Jordan. I don't even remember those. It was an Air Force One or like a white dunk. And that's all you got. And I would wear these like, I remember Biggs one time in a car was like, why are you wearing, it was Biggs, I think it was Biggs or Damon Dash. If it was Damon, he probably would have yelled it at me. Um, but I was wearing like this super butter soft, like Mahara. And they were like, are you a ballerina? Why are you wearing ballerina shoes? And I was like, Okay, I admit they're a little ballerina like, but they're really comfortable. And and I was explaining the like his heel cup on the outsole and just the design of this shoe and like what went into it and like how bold it was for I think it was Tony Bertone and um that was leading I think the the collaborations and Barney Waters who's at um I think K-Swiss now, he's the president of K-Swiss. They were at Puma and they were leading all of these like crazy, amazing collaborations. And and I was like, I wanna stop getting out of the abstract of of designing brands and and communications. And I wanna get into to the fashion part. And you know, I'm a rock, I'm a industrial design rock star. I can design toothbrushes and airplanes. Yeah. So I just I just dove into fashion really hard. It's interesting you brought up Mihara. Um, yeah, I first met him like five years ago, and um, he showed me the the Puma that he spliced the vert like the in the early days his first Puma collab, and he, like what he did when he spliced like two different shoes together, like it's just playful, it's just silly, like I love it. And and it's, I think it's beautifully witty and taking, taking fashion kind of lightly and having this sense of humor. Like now he's working um, with my buddy Nigel, Nigel Caborn, They've been making the um, like their big fat sneaker for a yeah. few seasons now, and like every just like the two of them are. I think when you see the two of them together, they're like two peas in a pod. They're just like little kids in grown up bodies, and like this idea of playing seems like seems like a real like when you when you read beautiful literature when you see beautiful art when you when you see great design there's there's always this lightness about it that sometimes I feel like people get too serious about life so yeah that's really nice that you you brought that up I think that if when people I mean I feel the same way like if people get 
really serious about fashion and like footwear. It's, um, you need to find meaning for your life. Yeah. It's, it's, um, it's interesting. It's, it's, uh, I love Nigel's stuff. Like I've always been a huge fan even before he became so internet mainstream, you know, like when he was very, very, do you think he's internet mainstream? Tell me about that. I want to know what you what you see. So, I mean, he's still. This is obviously from my perspective. Yeah. Like there, there's absolutely. If you went to the average person in, especially America, they're going to have no idea. No idea. It's it's, um. But in terms of us in the industry, he's, you know, he's he's out there and he's getting. Um, more love. I think the element collaboration was amazing because it allowed, like I'm in a startup, like I can't afford like a $3,000, you know, keyboard coat. Um, but then, and then they made it accessible and they, and they made it, um, they exposed it to an entire new generation of, of, of younger people that could, could, could do that. Same with my friend, Jeff Griffin, who, Hi Jeff. I was, Hi Jeff, if you're listening. Hi Jeff. <laughs> uh, and I was, I was, um, um, amazed. Like I just love, like his love, and I've loved his stuff for so long. And because we're friends, I'm, I'm able to, to get garments, you know, based on friendship, and they're my, just my most prized possessions. And, but it, uh, otherwise, I would just, you know. I'd be able to look at photos of them until I sell my, my startup for billions of dollars. And then I could, you know, I yeah. could fly over Loveland and buy all of the coats. But, um, that, that element collaboration was really, is really amazing, um, to, to be able to take that level of fashion and make it more accessible. But to Nigel's thing, um, to the Nigel question, it's not mainstream. It's just, I think people like to reshare his stuff cause he's, he's got such a happy smile, yeah. you know, like he just looks like he's, always he's, having part fun. Of the re- he's also part of the reason I moved. Yeah, like right. he's, he's definitely part of like one of the, if you put like 20 post-its on a wall, I'm like, like, look at this guy like running around the world. Like, <laughs> And he's always his like big shoes with his big backpack. And he's, he's just, he looks like my grandpa. Um, <laughs> and he, he looks like a much fashion, more fashionable version of my, what I remember my grandfather being. And, um, they you just know have what like it is, though? You know what it is. So it's some, it's seeing someone who absolutely loves, absolutely loves what he does. And that's, to me, like, that's the essence of it. That's what you see when you see his photos. That's it, in a nutshell. And that's where I realized that I needed to make this, this personal huge change where it was just, and I don't want to criticize New York too much, but I I think that it kind of goes without saying that it should be criticized right now from a political standpoint and, and many other standpoints, but I, I was just, I guess I was stuck in the notion that I had to be 
some place for it to all happen mm. and not understand that, you know, I mean, I built the world's largest creative collective and the first virtual agency with the, my company, the KDU. And I had thousands of members all over the world. And some of them, most of them, I never met. They worked in, you know, Poland and Brazil and Argentina and Japan and all over the world. And we worked virtually and we did this in like 2004, five, six, and we did it for a decade really hard. Um, and, and I don't understand why like my mindset was that I needed to be rooted in Brooklyn. Like Brooklyn was part of my identity, but Brooklyn didn't make me happy. New York city did not make me happy. Like I wasn't, I wasn't, and I, again, I had this like amazing storybook career and I just wasn't smiling, mm. you know? And I think it was because of that lack of happiness, I think it affected my work a lot. And in 2013, I just, I stopped designing clothing, which made me like, I, I like I, I was unhappy just in, in general within relationships and, and the city that I lived in. And I, and I stayed there and I thought I'll blame design. I'm not happy because of design and, or, you know, you blame other things. And, and it was just the proximity. Like I was someplace that I it just did not make me happy. And I was around people and a, and a mindset that I thought were required for me to do my job. But I learned the hard way that that's not what brings happiness. You know, like I love designing, like I love making stuff and creating stuff. And if I put myself in, a, in an amazing environment around really amazing people, um, and it's fun being in Pennsylvania because 99% of the people have no idea what I do. They don't care if I, that you do stuff with Adidas or Kanye or there's the Jay-Z stuff and they don't care. Mm. They just care that you're nice and they talk about the weather and food and for me fishing and they have no concern about my opinion of this color and this material and this thing yeah. and that thing and so it's re it's really refreshing the balance between the two worlds creates for me creates happiness mm. so i think um yeah like a lot of people right now, especially like because of this whole situation that the world finds themselves in, um, a lot of people are having identity crises right now. And a lot of people are um, looking to find work that gives their, gives them meaning, um, gives their life meaning. And for me, that's more about like asking yourself why you do something um, going back one step further and asking like, why do you like this? Why are you doing this? Like just asking why all the time. And that's what I thought was really interesting about Vanish today is your, the framework that you, um, that you frame your, Hey, Vanish. Um, yeah, the framework that you've kind of made around Vanish today, culture, is it culture, future, nature or I've got that order wrong 
nature culture future or i can nature swap culture future. okay yeah. nature culture future um they're kind of putting like physical frameworks around you know asking yourself why you're doing something why does this give me meaning um so like tell tell people out there what vanished today how did that start and like yeah what is it about what is nature culture future the the brand is just vanish the vanish today part is is the media side of it and we i was i was going to i was rebuilding the brand for like a camera and my friend aaron levant from he started the agenda trade show which just basically is responsible for the kind of global propagation of streetwear, um, especially in the United States. There's no other force that was that was greater than what he was doing. And he helped start Complex Con, and he he's just a he's a tr really true icon and an entrepreneur. He he now runs Network, the the online platform that does all of the the drops. It's 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 an amazing platform and. So I was using Agenda to penetrate a new market for Leica. And we would, with Aaron, we would set up these large photo studios and we would just dock it very simple. We would just give all of the attendees of Agenda really great photos of themselves. Like really, really nice, like monochrome like profile picture quality we we literally would shoot like 700 to a thousand people per day during agenda wow. and we would shoot them with like a monochrome and like a, a noctilux like a zero it's like the ultimate lens like a zero nine five lens and they're gorgeous pictures like and everybody was like changing out their linkedin photos or changing out their like like immediately requesting and we would have like I'm not going to like, you know, there's a lot of celebrities there and there's a lot of like entertainers, big fashion icons and heads of companies and people would come up to us and we, we would tell them that we wanted to, we would get them the photos like a week later and people would come up and be like, I really like my photo. Like, can I have my, is there any way to get my photo now? And I told my team, I was like, whatever you do, don't give them the photos. Yeah. And you have this like, skateboard icon or like music icon like nudging you for your photos and then you're like oh okay like you know that th that guy was my childhood like icon like i'm gonna you know i'm gonna break my own rules but we we were like through a conversation with like aaron and i and he introduced me to benji wagner who started polar mm -hmm. and i was like I was also consulting for Adidas um, and kind of in the last phase of like consulting them with Futurecraft. And I had done my job with Leica and it was done. Like I, I my job was to rebuild the, the brand and the, and the strategy for how they went from 
at the 100 year anniversary, almost bankruptcy to now where they are. And, and I realized like, well, I'm not going to move to Germany and like become a camera executive. So like you have to start thinking, what do you do next? And I had kind of temporarily closed the KDU and I had shut the collective, my brand SVSV, I had shut that down and I was just full-time working with, with partnered with Leica. And I thought, I just, you know, all your friends, like, what do you want to do? And I was like, I just want to go fishing. And it was a joke. You know, they were like, what do you want to do? And I was like, just fish. They're like, what do you think about fishing? <laughs> what? Yeah. Like, no one knew, nobody knew like that. I was just like a closeted angler and they would sit there and think like, you know, you're some kind of like streetwear because of the hip hop background. Everybody can't like not ask those questions. And, but like, all I would think about is fishing. Like well, I was consulting for Hennessy for like all of those Hennessy bottles and like all of these like youth culture kind of penetration products for Hennessy. I developed them myself. Like that we sounds ran pretty the, epic in one sentence, youth culture penetration products. Is that like some, I've never worked in a corporate job in my life. Is that like <laughs> something you'd say like at a meeting just on a, you, on a Wednesday if you, afternoon? If you sat in, now I can't speak for any other division other than like LVMH corporate strategy meetings for let's say Hennessy. Um, but yeah, it's the way that it's the way that it's described. Youth culture the way penetration products. <laughs> as ridiculous as that, but yeah, it's, um, I had a meeting recently where I had to explain to the head of that company the term drop and to, and I, and you know, their whole market is to, to go after the kind of the hype beast kid, not kid, take that back. Cause it's alcohol. So they're not targeting kids, but the, the youth, the young male, especially that's, that's into that Supreme sneaker culture and, you know, yeah. hip hop and that energy. And, we developed that. Like I, I got cause cause and I got Brian to, to agree to do the, the first collaboration and then Shepherd Ferry and then Futura. And we had even done like major collaborative tests before that. And I had myself personally designed the, the flask cover and the flask cover for Hennessy was to match the, the bottles to the popular colors of like Nikes and Adidas wow. at the time so that you would accessorize your flask with the shoes that you were wearing or the hat that you were wearing and right. kind of like give you kind of a mid, like a mid outfit kind of color hit. And I'm explaining to the president, um, I think he's the president of North American Hennessy, like what a drop was. And I just thought to myself, like, why am I here again? Like, yeah. why? Why am I explaining to people that, like, have, they don't create, they don't, they're not creating 
for this culture. It's just something they have to do for their corporate job. Yeah, I feel and like I was, that's like one thing that was interesting about, I read about your, your brand that you started and there was that article about um, your kind of like, you know, fight against fast fashion and mass consumerism and large, large brands. I think the problem with corporation is that when you, when something grows too big and to the point where like every little facet of a biz, of the company becomes like there's a team dedicated for that tiny facet of that, that little area, then things get disjointed. And like on that kind of scale, I think that is part of the, co the problem with corporation. Um, that's kind of what got me interested um, in, in your, your brand as well. Um, tell me about, yeah, tell me about fishing and your shift to nature going from this kind of city corporate world back into nature and so it, it, it just, it's back to it's back to Leica. like mm. we we I was traveling a lot and I was so honored to be able to like have the responsibility especially at the 100 year anniversary of that brand and I had a very good close relationship with the chairman um this Dr. Kaufman and it was such a traditional company and it took so much work to convince these people to um, like, let's just say your hair is on fire, right? Like your microphone set your hair on fire and there's a cup of water sitting next to you. Yeah. And I said, well, Lauren, I think that the solution is to possibly take the burning headphones off and to then pour the glass ah. of water burning flames Jesus, and then maybe and then maybe stop drop and roll just to be safe and the the germans would literally while their hair was burning would look at you and say but is is this the water that should be used um because i was planning on drinking this water later and you're like or you could just continue to burn to death. And I was sitting in these meetings and I was just like, and I was like, I'm going to give myself a little honk honk. Leica was literally not discussed. And of all of the brand transformations and projects that I've ever touched, that one was just a, a hand grenade of success. It was it was just this overwhelming acceptance of into the markets that I placed Leica into. And they were it just it really worked. And I was just like, oh, my God, I cannot believe I'm doing this. Like, why do I care about a German camera company that I don't own? Like, I don't own this. Like, it was really fun. Like. Like if I knew you at the time, I'd be like, well, we, we have to, we have to get her a Leica and you know, we, we've got to get this person and this creator and this designer, like they need Leicas, um, you know, good God, what else are they shooting with a, you know, a cannon? that's, that's ungodly. And so it was fun, like, you know, empowering like creative friends, mm. but it was just, I was like, God, I just keep 
I'm in the same situation again. So the, the, the Hennessy part of this wasn't to like name drop Hennessy. It was you're flying all over the world doing these amazing projects for Hennessy. And I'm, and I was sitting with Kevin Ma from hype beast and who at the time hated to travel. And I had a basically like creatively manipulate him to get on a plane to come to France to sit and have like lunch with cause at the Hennessy Chateau mansion in Cognac, France. And we're all sitting around a table. And when you look down the, the large lawn at the Hennessy mansion, there's this bucolic river that runs through it. And it's filled with these giant French perch. Mm. And right on the bridge next to the Hennessy headquarters is a fishing store. And while everybody else, there's all these LVMH executives and they're all dressed in like, you know, $2,000 suits with $5,000 handkerchiefs. And there's one of the biggest artists in the world. And there's the biggest, you know, media icon with hype beast. And all I could think about was fishing. Yeah, man. Like, I, couldn't I, would pay, too. I, I couldn't pay attention. I was like, you know, they're, they're talking about the project and Pharrell and this thing. And I was just like, yeah, that's, that sounds fucking great. Like I've met Pharrell, like you know, whatever. And, um, and I, and I was just like, God, I gotta find time to like do this. So I would literally lie about having to do like another project and I've got to get back to Paris and I've got to do this thing and that thing. And um, I went over and I bought some fishing rods and I started like fishing yeah. cognac. Nice. And I would do it secretly. Like it was like some kind of dirty secret. And like even some of the LVMH executives back then would be like, like, why are you like, why are you talking about fishing? And I was like, because it's never mind. <laughs> like, yeah. It's a fish thing. You're not going to understand it. Down there, and, you'd probably get some, like, nice pike, uh, perch, carp, maybe. There's yeah. There was ever caught a carp, and they used those, but there was pike everywhere, and I just wasn't fishing them right. But I did catch a lot of perch. And they used those really long um, extent. It's basically like a giant tankara rod, just in carbon. Yeah. And they just do the, they do the pole. It's like the... the southern french yeah they they like yank it out like it's like on a short line and then they just wait till they like you know the fish is on and then they'll like yank it out um yeah that's i live up in the north of france and that's things don't change in france they've been doing the same thing for centuries they know what's good but I, would, I would look at this river like behind um behind the the, the chateau and there were like lilac gardens mm. and, you know, it, it's, it just looked like Napoleon's Airbnb. It, <laughs> it was, I mean, it was on, I mean, you're sitting there and you're like, the whole world was like obsessed with this Hennessy stuff we were doing. And I hid, it's, it has to still be there. There's no way they found it. I hid fishing poles at the Hennessy Chateau. Like, because I wasn't taking them back and forth. So there's this like abandoned part 
of the where the family used to live at the chateau and we had access to it like um we could just had free reign you know you could um go anywhere so i would hide i had two fishing poles and i hid them at the hennessy mansion and i told like some of the hennessy guys and they were like no you didn't and i'm like oh my god oh my god i hid fishing poles like you should fire me right now i'm terrible and um but that those are the moments and the same thing happened at Leica where I just kept sitting in these boardrooms and I was like, this is like not where I want to be. Like you're doing what everybody thinks is some amazing dream job and you hate it. Mm. And it's because you drive past like beautiful mountains and beautiful wilderness on your way to another board meeting. Mm. And to build, to basically raise other people's children is how I was looking at it. They're not my brands. Like, you know, it, it's, you do all of this work and then they'll, they'll take credit for it. You're not even really mentioned, mm. you know, like, like, like Adidas invented Futurecraft. Hmm. Yeah, sure. Yeah. And um, so you're doing that constantly and it's just... It's, and I just thought, you know, I was just looking at Aaron and talking to my new, at the time, my new friend, Benji. And I was like, I gotta just like, I gotta do this. Like, I, I can't, I can't do this anymore. So I just started Vanish as like a, an Instagram. I, I thought to myself, I wish there was a hype beast for outdoor. Hmm. that's just where the thought came from. And I had presented that to like Benji and presented that to Aaron and they were like, yeah, there should be. But with and better like, writing. Hype beast, but with better writing. The, um, I love Kevin, so I can't, I can't, com I can't comment. <laughs> yeah. I'm but. just putting my own opinion out there on the internet. Hype beast. Anyone who works for hype beast, please like, Take pride in writing. Literature is a beautiful thing and writing is so important. Full stop. It, anyway. It is. Evan basically is a is a as a physicist that invented gravity. Um like hype beast is just so large that um it's such a it's such a machine that um I'm sure that he has, I'm positive that he has a very strong opinions on like the quality of the journalism. It's just, they're so large and they're producing yeah. so much. Well, you saw, we saw that happen with Monocle magazine as well. You know, you know, oh, Monocle, yeah. Monocle used like, you know, de decades, decades ago, it used to be, you know, quality writing. Now it's just this kind of, just this machine, just, you know, pushing out same shit, different day. Kind of yeah. Thing. Yeah. But so I just I started with that. Like we 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 need I want I personally want that. And at the time I was buying Go Out magazines yeah. from Japan. Go it out became so my, fun. It became my favorite magazine and I remember showing it to the people at Leica and like the marketing people and and then Dr. Kaufman the the owner and you know, like when you're developing strategy, you have to 
obviously market to the moment, but you have to create for the future. And I said, the outdoor space is what is coming. And it's coming for these very kind of academic, immutable forces that are going to create this return to the to nature, which are very simply, the more and more that the world becomes digital and virtual, for us, organic species, an organic creature, there's going to be an inverse reaction mm. back to the organic. Yeah. And I do tend to become hyper academic with a lot of the strategies mm. and I've learned over the years to make them more and more and more simple. Mm. Like I try to get them down to like, not to abuse the term, but like an idiot proof sentence. I think and that's important though. And I think that's a skill in itself to actually make something to communicate a complex idea so that anyone can understand. That's not easy. I used to, I used to have, and it's something that I learned to, to do. Um, it, it, it used to be these large strategy decks that were like when I was at Rockefeller, like I kind of brought strategy to, especially design strategy to hip hop mm. and, you know, brought the idea that Jay-Z is not a human so much as he is a brand and he should be managed as a brand. And the company at the time was called Human Brand and my company that, that they ended up purchasing and, and um, before I, I went in and became their partner. And it, it basically came down to that, even in hip hop, um, that celebrities were brands and they should be managed accordingly. They shouldn't be managed like people with, you know, like, like, so that kind of that ideology sort of um, was quite successful. And I learned to kind of keep reducing it down and down and down to its very kind of essence. Mm. But in the beginning, I would just put like 200 page strategies, like full blown dissertations yeah. and hand over these blueprints thinking, well, if this guy sitting to my left understands this part, this guy sitting to my right won't but he'll understand the later part. And now it's just... If they actually read it all too. <laughs> yeah, I was just, I think probably insecure with, I was very lucky to be in very big positions very young. Mm. And I think I had age insecurity where the people, like I was sitting with like a, an officer title or a partner title around people that were twice my age and with three times my experience and I, I was just, I thought that maybe a tidal wave of work would somehow compensate that. But mm. I've since grown old and more comfortable in the, wise. in wise. And, but so it's just back to, I'm not like trying to avoid, it was just a, your question, it was just a long journey mm. that, that got me to, once I realized like, you know, Wow. I mean, even the, the negative neurological effects of what we're doing right now, there's like a radiation element to what we're doing right now. There's um, a slightly worse radiation element because you have radiation in front of your mouth and on yeah. your ears. And I'm getting fried right now. 
but but we do it so much that we actually are doing this. And so I was looking at like Japanese tree bathing and oh, I was dating. What's that? Joe, Japanese tree bathing is this. So trees are these amazingly powerful things, mm-hmm. right? So they have um, just the way that the amount of power that they, that they through this osmotic effect through osmosis, they, they drain the, the moisture from the soil and, that energy and that movement of, of moving moisture and the way that they communicate. Um, there's a great book called the secret of trees. Um, and then many books on forest bathing and it, so there's these principles that they're very Japanese rooted in like Japanese executives. I'm not sure if they do it anymore, but like in the, in the eighties and nineties, and they would be like mandated to spend like, 20 minutes to an hour a day immersed in a forest mm. or in like in corporate in a corporate sense, they would be immersed in like, you know, engineered rooms that were, were filled with trees and nature because the energy that emits from that creates more of a positive cellular equilibrium for us. Yeah. Right. Um, you know, we come from nature, mm. you know, we don't come from, an Elon Musk factory. Um, and it's the more, you know, there are no studies on the, the super positive physiological effects of digital powered, you know, like battery powered digital synthetic Mm -hmm. culture. Um, you know, there's some benefits to the economy. There's some benefits to speed of things and, the ease of communicating and, and things like that. But there's endless, uh, endless research um, for, for, for decades and decades about the positive benefits of, of spending time in nature. It's yeah. the same thing with breathing and same thing with meditating. Um, and they understand that if you, that's part of it, it's part of that sort of, you know, to, to get back to a better equilibrium in my mind, that's almost like more of a a focus back on the self, on the inner self, rather than being distracted, constantly being distracted by like, you know, city life or like work or like your phone or whatever it is, like that, having that silence. And, you know, that's that's one thing I love about, back to fishing again, that's one thing I love about fishing is like, you'll sit there for hours and you'll be by yourself like okay sometimes you'll be with a friend and it's fun but like you'll just be but with yourself for hours undistracted and like you don't really if you think about it you don't really get that time to yourself anymore in especially when you live in a city um but yeah even if you don't live in a city we like freaking we we carry these things around with us all day long they've like become a part of us and they've become a part of our human anatomy almost um it is and and it's it's there's so much because especially young people want to figure out a way to to use the technology to be entrepreneurial Mm -hmm. and to not live corporate lives and to 
to, to do some positive things, like have more freedom. But then we end up investing so much time into this virtual space. Mm. At the same time, you see the, the, the negative effects on the world, whether it's, you know, climate, you know, global warming or any of the climate issues, pollution, especially. And it's just, you know, there's a critical theorist named Neil Postman that was a, a protege of Marshall McLuhan. And he has this, these two great books, um, The Bridge to the 18th Century and Entertaining Ourselves to Death. And, you know, McLuhan predicted in the 60s and 70s the overwhelming and, to the most part, negative effects of digital culture, starting with radio and television and then getting worse into, you know, the Internet. And then Postman kind of took over. And um, his books were like in the 80s, like just so predictive of the state that we're in right now, mm. where we're so distracted by entertaining ourselves to death that you don't we have no idea what we're eating for the most part. We have no idea where the, our water comes from or that there's differences in the in different waters. It's you know, it's there's just trash like where does our trash go like just these basic questions mm -hmm. that if you literally lived at a camp if you were just camping they would be very essential questions because if you get them wrong for like one day you know a bear could eat you or you just have a messy campsite yeah but when you when you live in in a modern industrialized world you you can just forget about all these things and and kind of pass the buck to somebody else and that little micro irresponsibility amplified, you know, or, or, or magnified by the world's population has destroyed the world. And then you take a look at like the effects that it has on us socially, um, the way that we communicate, the way that we are, we lose civility because of the amenity of you know, we can set up an account and just, you know, be a bigot or we can set up an account anonymously and say whatever we want or attack people. And it's, again, amplified digitally on a global scale and it's dest it's destroyed us. I mean, look at America, what's happening right now. It's it's um, it's shameful to um, to look at what's happening. I was just in Portland, Oregon mm. and. It's just a disaster. Yeah. It's, it's just truly a disaster. So I think that for me, I can't do everything. I can't, I'm not going to be, I'm not going to think that my voice online is so mighty and so important that, that it's going to somehow change this absolute monster of a problem. But I can do certain things like the the goal for Vanish is just a very large scale of what, let's say, fishing did for me. Fishing, like getting back to fishing was my like daily one, move out of the city two engage nature to engage nature. I'm either going to go hiking a lot or learn mountain climbing which I'm not going to do um, or 
mow grass or go fishing. So it's, it's just, it's my, it's my like sweet spot. It's my natural kind of comfortable place. And I would go out and I would go fishing and I would engage nature every day. And then a month would go by and I realized that I was generally happier. My stress levels were down. I was sleeping better. I was less of an ass to work with. <laughs> like I was far less demanding, like little teeny things that would bother me this time last year in, in Brooklyn don't matter to me now because it, I, I, I want to, I keep having this kind of nature has this gravity that's pulling me back to that happy place. And, and I, and you, so I think if this platform has a purpose of doing every, using every single strategy and trick that I've, I've learned over the years to build brands and accelerate brands to, for commercial purposes, to sell more cameras, to sell more shoes. If I can do that with a larger concept like nature, if I can, if I can make people want a camera that they don't need and they're going to go into debt to purchase this camera mm. or to possibly even to get into a debt to purchase some shoes or some fashion that we've helped create or we've created. Um, it's a better goal and it's a more lifetime sort of passion and a mission that this isn't a project that ends right? Like in my lifetime, we're not going to fix nature. No. Um, we're not going to, we're not going to suddenly sands a beautiful solar flare that destroys the internet. Um, you know, this, this brilliant contraption of the internet is going to this, you know, ironic cacophony of idiocy is going to continue forever. And, but if my goal is to just get people interested in nature, then they'll care about it. You know, if you can get somebody to do something once or twice or three times and to begin to engage it, you can get them to care about it. If they care about it, maybe they change their, their way that they, you know, move through this world or their consumptive mm. pattern, their choices. Maybe they, they, they don't want anything that's maybe they move more towards slow fashion for the right reasons. Mm. Um, you know, and then maybe they start, you know, demanding it from the larger companies. And, um, it's, uh, it's, you know, but you need to use like part of the SVSV, um, ideology that was the, the first part of future craft was that it was like a tagline, but that was our mantra that like consumption is salvation. Like we can't, you, you, you can't, feed medicine initially without making it taste like candy. Like you, you can't get everybody to wrap their head around like Jean Bolger critical theory on um, simulations and simulacra and high concepts of, you know, what we're going through and, how to critically examine everything. Most people are like, I just want me some Kanye. Yeah. <laughs> Give me some Kanye. Let me put this to you though. So from my observation, let me ask you a question. 
Do you think it's possible that the problem is not technology itself, but in effect, in effect, the economy and this idea of productivity, um, like exponentially exponential growth, and it is in fact the economic system that has driven our technologies and our activities and our culture to become so non-stop so you know ever consuming ever working ever you know producing like is that more of the problem rather than the technology itself do you think and do you think that is why people are more drawn to nature because they are actually needing space for themselves to this quietness that I talked about before of, of like needing space in the mind. Like we saw that with the lockdown, you know, people have suddenly had time to themselves. Like for the first time, you know, we were snowballing our productivity. You know, it was, it was just becoming too overwhelming. We suddenly pause and people for the first time have, you know, have, have time to appreciate themselves have time to appreciate, you know, being outdoors, you know, so many small things that, that people have suddenly, you know, not beforehand not been allowed the time to be able to think about these things. Yeah, no, I mean, it, that's, that's it in a nutshell. Mm. It's, it's time. It's, you know, I mean, for me, it's the happiness in life is where you invest your time. Like, I don't, I don't, I've never disrespected any of the, or not disrespected, but like disregarded the work for the Leicas and Adidas and the Jay-Z's and the, you know, all these, these big brands and stuff. It's just, you know, I'm proud of that work, but like, it's not where, when I look back, I don't remember the time that I spent there as the highlight moments of my life. Mm. You know, the time with my daughter is number one. The time with bass and trout is mm. a close number two, not close at all. Um, my daughter's <laughs> number one yeah. by far. But um, eventually when, you know, my, my daughter who will most likely She's a really good fisherman. She's she's pretty nice. good. The, the more the more time that she um, the more time that she spends, you know, with me, I'm sure that those two those two happy places will kind of come together more and more. It, it's just what you know. Economics is the is the is the last thing that I kind of delved into, and the. It's interesting. I think that it comes down to choice, how you choose to live your life. You could choose to live where you live, and I'm sure it's far less stressful and cheaper to live there than it is to do this in shortage in the middle of London mm. or, you know, to do this in the middle of Tokyo or the middle of, I mean, like maybe the Ponytail Journal from London would be even more popular and mm. like, Oh my God, like you're doing it. Like you're walking through the streets and look over there. There's the, you know, there's yeah. this guy, this girl, like, but it's, we don't need to do that anymore. Yeah. You know, like we can work remotely. You can design remotely. You can now sell 
to um, I was you can sell directly, which is just makes more sense anyway. Mm. Um, the idea of like taking it back to fashion, like I was just on a call. I, I had announced that I'm going to relaunch the KDU, the, the collective part of, of uh, the business. And like eight hours later, a very large global footwear company contacted me to, to lecture them as part of a trend thing. And I got on and it was a part of a series of people and all of these people were on there pandering to this brand, basically to have consideration to be hired. And I just came on and was like, yeah, all of that's bullshit. Like the reason that you're not the number one or number two brand is because you keep trying to figure out how to predict the future and create massive collections 18 months in the future. Like, have you guys ever, do you have Siri on your phone or Google? Like, Hey Google, Hey Siri, why is this idea bad? <laughs> like Google will tell you series, you know, series will go to Bing and figure it out. Like it's, you know, scale is such a problem. Like economic scale is such a problem. Like, that we think, especially because of the internet and compare like comparative, you know, lifestyles, you know, like I, I look at, um, Nigel's thing and maybe my life isn't as happy because I don't travel as much, you know, like, I think that was a good comparative thing. Cause it got me to get up off my ass and, and move, you know, I would look at Jeff Griffin and Loveland. And I think Jeff, I'm going to say that Jeff was the number one reason I moved. Yeah, right. His farm is I, epic. It looks epic. That, that, ought to, that ought to put a slight smile on his, um, his, <laughs> his always, style. his surly kind of stoicness. Um, but he was definitely like, you know, him and his lovely wife were like, I just kept seeing these photos and he's, he's, I consider his work, like just on my top three favorites of all time. And the, especially because of the way that he did it and where that he, where he did it and where he does it and how he lives his life. Um, and looking at it and just being like, God, this is the way to do it. Like, imagine if we just all did it like that, like, if we all know, had like, a, a low carbon footprint farm in the middle of in the rural parts of the English coastline. <laughs> like it's, I mean, this weekend I have, I have a tree house on like 25 acres and we're, I jokingly internally call it like Loveland East um, or Loveland West um, where, where the, where the, we're going West. And um, it, it's, it's, um, you know, I need, I need a couple more decades to invest in this space to, to, it just has a little teeny tree house on it and a nice pond. And, um, it's kind of a space that I created for originally for my daughter. And then it became like a retreat for, for me to go and think and be in nature and work. Mm. And you, 
you realize that the, again, it's what you said, it's the simplicity of our relationship with time mm. is, is what it is. And, and time is very contextually at a DNA level also rooted with where you're at. Yeah. You know, like it's New York time, London time, Tokyo time is different than mountain treehouse time yeah. and on the river fishing time and and spending time and, with your daughter time and yeah you know important things yeah. and those those basic things which are just part of the human experience like when you wake up every day and you are just running around new york city and you're stuck in traffic and you're angry at that cab driver and you know why does the uber smell the way that it does and why, why is the, oh my God, the Uber guy's talking on the phone, you know, and oh my God, like I got to grab a bite to eat, but I don't have time. So I'm just going to grab this shitty piece of pizza and I'm going to get on the subway and it's crowded and hot and filthy. And, and it's like, it'll never end until the, the, the pandemic ended it, mm. you know, the, the, and then people had that time and then the Black Lives Matter movement with what's going on politically in our country as well. Mm. I think also it's it's that perfect storm of, again, it's time. People were, were sitting and thinking. If that would have happened, imagine if the George Floyd thing, which was just ridiculous. ethically horrible to, mm. to watch that, it was ridiculous, that that's a police officer. And it's not even... The most ridiculous part is not even what happened to that poor man. It's the fact that it just happens so much. Yeah. And it's it's just and then the crazy part for me is that it continues to happen. Could you imagine being a cop now knowing that not only are you going to be arrested and most likely killed in prison, that your family, your children, yeah. like you're destroying everything around you. Like you're you're de you're decreasing the value of your neighbor's homes. Yeah. When you're one of those cops and in it. And again, I think that it philosophically goes back to time. We are, we're all so in a rush and we're yeah. all so rushed. And there's these little teeny, like, I think I have like 6,500 books in the, in the library and like in my personal library. And I've, and I've read, you know, three of them or four of them. I'm kidding. I've read them all and I've read a lot of them many times. And there's just a couple lines that really stand out. There's this tiny little book that I got in an airport on like yoga philosophy. I was like, I don't know about yoga philosophy. I don't do yoga. I should buy this book. Mm. And inside of it, it had one line that said form is more important than pace. And it just hung on me where I was like, it's not about how fast I do this stuff. It's about like what I'm doing and how I'm doing it. The most important one that the lines, words that I've ever read were handed to me by a homeless man in Brooklyn written on a Chanel. It's like one of my most prized random objects. It's, it's a Chanel card, like a perfume card. Yeah. And he had scribbled on it. Um, all of your problems will be solved in silence. Mm. And I was like, 
and I had just randomly given him a dollar. He wasn't begging. He wasn't doing anything. You know, he wasn't like trying to, you know, get money for me. He didn't have any like funny signs. He wasn't harassing me. He was just sitting on the street and I walked up to him and like gave him a dollar and he handed me this Chanel card. And I was like, huh? <laughs> like, are you like a Chanel? You know, like, are you part of like some sort of Chanel um, marketing campaign? But he handed me this thing and it's, it's just epically powerful where it's like, you know, when you're just running and gunning and, and like, I want to be the biggest and I want to be the best. And I want to be, you know, I spent that time in hip hop, you know, I want it to be bigger and I want it to be like, even from a strategy standpoint, it's like, Oh, you have strategies. Let's talk about mine. Mm. Like, you know, Oh, you create culture. Let's compare resumes. And there's that kind of male testosterone driven ego part and that was amplified to a to a nuclear kind of level inside the environment of new york in the yeah. in the time in the context of the the new york's time hmm. it made me a monster and i think that you you look at that globally and i think that it's rooted to economics and and it's made all of us monsters, you know, not all of us, but you know what I mean? It's, it's just made, we're just moving so fast. We're entertaining ourselves. We're, we're trying to, Distract you know, every, millenn every millennial thinks that he should be wearing $700 Yeezys and driving a Lamborghini. Wow. And, and, you know, dating Kim Kardashian and, um, flying private jets and, and everything in your life is going to be, is going to be about the pursuit of this imaginary construct of what you believe your life should be. And, you know, and you can't just run like a small bakery. You have to run the next global app bakery that, you know, like it's gotta be the biggest and the, and the greatest thing in the world. And then your pursuit of, of that construct eats up your time. And well, can I also add another part to that? Cause it has to do with economics is actually today it's, it's become so hard for people to actually run small to medium businesses um, because they're, you know, the way that our economy works is that, yeah, well, in, in many countries, um, these small businesses struggle to survive because, um, you know, the, the race is pitted against them to start with. Um, so, you know, it's all part of that big story. Um, so yeah, a lot of people also want to, want to work the least amount for the max, most maximum reward, um, which is part of, yeah, exactly what you were saying as well. Um, it's like the, th the thing that I love the most now about what is happening, especially with the kind of hype beast generation is the fact that like, you know, like some good things can happen if all of us kind of recognize them together unilaterally and, and like we, we would all recognize a positive trend 
the kind of creators and the people behind the industry, so to speak, and, 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 and pushed. And instead of it just being like always economically driven, that you realize that um, if there, there, there's, there's another greater good that's taking place. Like right now, techware is, is probably the hottest kind of trend in men's fashion. And it's from Virgil doing kind of techware things and Kanye doing techware things to, you know, from a very different angle, Nigel and Jeff and, and all these people creating this whole sort of techware energy that that's really rooted in nature. And people will tend to get this stuff and maybe city kids start to, to look elsewhere, like and they find Vanish or they find other really great um, like Instagram walls like Hiking Patrol. I like that one. Um, there's another one called Organic Lab. Uh, zip. Zip Organic Zip Lab. They're fun. They're I don't know what that they is, but it's my, my stuff favorite. a few times, and I'm, I then I started following them. They have fun stuff. I think that I was just told that it's one kid, and he may or may not be a student. And I, I was like, yo, that. I want to hire that kid <laughs> or like know him. I'm like, he's basically like, so for Vanish to accomplish its goals and its, its larger mission, we have to not, we have to be a little bit more commercialized to reach scale. And so you can't just do things that are just super art related. Um, and it's kind of like there was a Jay-Z line that said, if he didn't care about money, he would rap like Talib Kweli. That's like what organic lab is to me. I was like, if I didn't have to worry about like advertisers and sponsors and investors and cap tables and VCs and exit strategies and this partner and that partner, I would just do what he's doing. Yeah. Like I would just put up like this aesthetic stream of consciousness um and and it's it's good but but my i'm sure my goals are different so i have you know different uh, daily agenda but the 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 idea again is this if we can if we can get something like the hype beast high snob culture of affecting tens and hundreds of millions of people around the world and you get them into paying attention to something good like what parlay is doing with adidas or what adidas is doing with um future craft loop um which is i think really you know brilliant and and very kind of um humbling that they would take my ideology and take it to a scale so large, you know, I was doing, I was doing future crafts and SVSV from a, a very well appointed, but still small studio in Brooklyn. Mm. And I was uh, trying to just affect a very small amount of people. Um, and they're doing it on a completely different level on a global scale. And but like, there's a lot of good. If you reach, if you go through pop culture and you go through the kind of hype beast culture, and if we could all kind of latch on to the good parts, like 
techware can lead to a young male, especially a young male consumer to go outside. Um, And if they go outside, maybe we can keep them outside with other things. Like maybe we could, um, maybe they realize they don't need to buy a $4 million condo in New York or Miami. Maybe they could spend their money elsewhere. Maybe you could shift their goals in a different direction. Um, I think what, um, not to get into the totality of Kanye West, but I think what Kanye's doing with the Wyoming ranch and putting big Russian Sherp ATVs in, in, um, in his videos and even Virgil doing like kind of mountain packs and different types of like outdoor gear mixed into, you know, his collections, it gets a generation of people that would, um, never go camping, go fishing, like an inner city kid, a fashion kid, um, maybe, you know, an entertainment kid, a tech kid to look at something differently Mm. and to kind of turn their head a little bit. And when those forces are turning their head, that's our goal with Vanish. Like we're the, when their heads are turned, we're the thing that Mm. is, is sitting in that line of sight. Um, it takes a lot of responsibility though. Um, you know, to me, when you when when you're talking about this, this word responsibility keeps flashing in my head because, like, can we like? Yes, your intentions are really great, but can we trust other brands and agencies um, to be responsible with the voice? the that they put out the, with the content that they put out and the intention behind what they put out to the, the intention of goodness can we it's trust? hard it's yeah. hard I, I i can't personally i think that it also goes down to it, it's it's economics so inside of every single company that i've ever worked with there are amazing people with amazing agendas that get crushed by the process that happens reviewing them in a boardroom, Mm. which is then led by exclusively the economic gains of the particular idea. It's, it's, you know, well, what is, what is the cost of this and what is the, the benefit in terms of profitability of every single idea. And when, when that is the, the initial filter, then so many amazing ideas, which could have a greater effect on, on a brand, um, get lost and get killed. And so it's, it's hard. I mean, it's interesting to see what will happen in two years from now. Yeah. Like, every company in the world is, is doing some type of black lives matter thing. Uh, And I think that's good. It's good. But but is, I feel like if their intention is not completely hundred percent good and meaningful, and if they're just, which a lot of brands are being caught up on this, when a lot of brands have just jumped on that social justice bandwagon for the wrong reasons that, I, 
I don't see that as good and I don't see brands as being responsible for um, for social justice. I can't trust that that most brands have the the same the the good conscious conscience conscience to be able to re- be responsible for these very big issues. Um, so it's really interesting to see a lot of that and the backlash that happened. Um, you know when big when a lot of brands kind of blackwashed their um, messaging. It's yeah, it's going to be it's going to be interesting to see not now and not in a year because of all the political things that are happening, especially in the United States with the next election. Um, you know, obviously, when Kanye wins, what kind of president he'll be? Um, when Kanye wins, <laughs> you know, I mean, but seriously, in America, like we, we probably, yeah. We'd, we'd probably be, look, to, to think that Kanye couldn't be president and that Donald Trump is president is, if we had this two, if we had this conversation two years before Donald Trump yeah. was elected, I was like, well, when President Trump, you would laugh too and everybody would laugh. And now Donald Trump is our president. Yeah. Um, it is the which land is, of freedoms. It's the land of freedoms. It's um, Freedoms are the are the most rights and freedoms are I think America's pride and joy and and you know that says a lot for the the culture that it has um, developed for itself um, it's it, it's yeah. inter- it's interesting it's going to be like if you take even Adidas one of the most interesting things that no one has brought up is that this this company when Black Lives Matter first happened, or not Black Lives Matter, because that's the organization, but the, you know, the, the, the response the to George Floyd, the, when the movement kind of locked in and sort of went hard. And all of the employees of Adidas rose up and said, well, now's the time that we're gonna ride this wave and we're gonna speak out. Mm. And we're gonna we're gonna talk about these things that take place that are not good. Um, and then all of this kind of inside information came out about. I'm not gonna talk on the you know, the the press that happened, but all of the kind of you know accusations that were were tossed around, and the realities of that company. It's amazing how instantaneously Pharrell. Kanye West and Beyonce did not immediately say, I'm going to stop my contracts with this company. Mm. Um, I'm, I'm going to, and again, it's economics, right? Like if, if they really believed what was being said and they cared about it, how they could not come out and say, I'm going to pause my, Ivy Park contract or my Yeezy contract until I have verified proof that change has occurred. Yeah. But do you think that they, they would ever economically risk the the massive amounts of... They have enough of, money as it is, don't you think? Right, they have enough money. They should use, they should use that. Not, they don't have to walk away from them, but they could say, 
I'm not going to work with you anymore until I'm completely comfortable. Yeah. Like for instance, when there was all the press that Beyonce was upset about the lack of diversity at Reebok, mm-hmm. but Reebok is owned by Adidas and the supervisory board of Adidas oversees both creatively and, and economically Reebok. Right. So it's basically like saying, um, I'm not going to eat at this restaurant because the chef is a racist, but I'm going to go to his other restaurant because there's more black waiters. Yeah, yeah. The, it, it, and, but nobody would dare say this out loud um, as she signs an enormous contract and, you know, and puts out all of this, this promotion and energy, which raised the brand of Adidas. And the same thing with Kanye, like, you know, if he's so hyper political about, about this movement and about how much he cares, then how could you not suspend your contract? Actions speak louder than words. Yeah. You know, because at no point in time is he going to say, listen, stop paying me until the, the, the black and brown members of your company give me the thumbs up. Then I'll re-engage. But nope. Yeah. Nope. Goes it's, back it's, to responsibility. Yeah. And it's not going to happen. And so, you know, the only thing that, that people can, I think that people can do is to have that, that economic, um, Concern, like I took another part of why I left New York, not just being secretly jealous every time that I would like look at not jealous, but envious every time I would like look at Nigel smiling or like um, Chris Burkhart flying around the world. I would like talk to Chris and he'll be like, "Okay, like we can't do the meeting for the next three weeks because this is my travel schedule. And you look at his travel schedule and you're like, Oh my God, like it's like his, his daily routine is like my life's bucket list of like, I want to go there. I want to go there. Like, how come I haven't been there? Like it's, you know, he lives, he lives this amazing life. And so there was a lot of that, like looking at Jeff and, and like, I want to raise pigs and, you know, I would eventually not eat them, but, um, but, you know, I, I, I very much respect how Jeff, you know, lives, lives his life. And, and um, that was a big part of it. Another really big part of it was 100% economics. And it was not the economics of New York being expensive. It was, I went through, and I have to be very careful how this is all worded. I went through a situation involving the courts of New York for non-criminal reasons. And the, and I felt for the first time corruption, like overwhelming corruption and the suppression of my freedoms and my rights. And you go online to other people experiencing similar situations and their solution was to complain and they would spend their lifetimes complaining about something that happened, you know, like they would, they would engage a court 
for a situation that engages like 70% of um, people that marry each other. And the, <laughs> I'm just trying to pick my words. And so I experienced it and I, I experienced this like overwhelming bias of a system against me as a man and a, and a father. And so I, I stepped back, it took me years and I stepped back and I, and I looked at the problem and I said to myself, well, one of the ways that I can have control over this is I can move myself and I can move my business away from this corruption, meaning I'm not going to build a potentially billion dollar empire and contribute to the tax base of a city that I've experienced its corruption firsthand mm. or its incompetence firsthand. Um, I won't do it. And see, that's what most people do. And, and I'm just using a, a, a very acute example of it. But the choices that we make are everything. The choices that yes. we make lead obviously to our freedom and to the freedom and the world and the freedom of others and the, the health of our planet, the health of ourselves. But we don't talk about that. We talk about um, we talk about popular things that would make us sound really fundable or um, less controversial unless our product is controversy. Mm. And it's and I got to the point where I was like, look, here's it's it's, it's as simple as this. If you want to rule me, if you want to like suppress my rights and like take away like freedoms of speech and all other types of things, I'm not going to spend a dollar in New York city contributing to a tax base that on an aggregate level pays your salary. I'm not going to do it. Mm. I'm not going to contribute to a tax base that pays police officers to kill people. Mm, absolutely. I'm not. That's you I'm taking not going responsibility. I'm, yeah. I'm not going I'm not going to go into your city and pay a toll. I'm going, I'm going to quietly, this is the first time that I've talked about it ever. I'm going to quietly boycott you with whether I'm rich or poor with every penny decision that I can make every dollar, every penny, I'm going to not give it to you. I'm going to not contribute to an economy that does not support me and that does not support that, that funds police that kill people on camera. Like I don't, I'm not going to, I don't believe that my particular voice and my protest is, is going to, um, you know, get new change in motion. But if you if people started talking about like like for instance, if you really hated Portland, Oregon, like what they're doing, you could temporarily just relocate. Absolutely. And just and and if you did it in mass, it would just cripple their economic base 
so that they would be like, oh man, like they, the, the people have spoken. Yeah. Not by electing a new official that they believe is going to suddenly be the messiah of change, but you can say, like for me, I build large businesses. That's I, consumer I build, power, really. What you're talking about. I don't about have like. I, is, I'm not. I am. I have no problem saying this. It's not my ego. It's the function of my job. My decisions for corporations affect billions of dollars, hmm. and I can choose where that energy is placed. And it's for me, it's not going to be placed in New York. It's not going to be ever given to the state or the city of New York until those things that I believe are corrupt are gone. And if they're not gone, which is the job of others, it's not my job. If they're not gone, then I will give them to Berks County, Pennsylvania, and I will build a tech empire and a fashion empire and a media empire here and I'll build it virtually and I'll, and I'll contribute to, I'll contribute to small microeconomics of uh, like, I mean, take a look at the workforce with Google and Twitter and Facebook where they are not in, for instance, Nike, this is really awesome. So we're talking to Nike team six which is for me right now, kind of like my little obsession. I'm just, I've, I, I don't know who they are. I, it's like a mystery. <laughs> I just learned that there's not six of them. There's like 17. Like I want every single thing that they create from a designer standpoint. I think it's just bananas. Um, the ISPA thing is just like so interesting to me. And so I was just out in Oregon and we drove past the Nike headquarters and I hit up Nike Team Six, and I was like, "I have a request." And the person comes back to me, and they're like, "You know, sure." And I'm sure they thought it was like a pair of shoes, or like, "Can I get some like, can I get that inflatable jacket or whatever?" And I was like, "I would like to uh, fish Lake Nike." And they were like, "Huh?" What? And I was like, "Do any of you fish?" Uh, I was like, you know, do any, is anybody fish on the team? I was like, does Mark Parker fish is like Tinker fish. Does anyone fish like, um, yo Nike, if anybody sees this, let's go fishing. Um, the, but like that. And, and they basically said like, you can't go to the headquarters. You're not you're like, no, no, it's quarantine. You can't go to the headquarters. Everybody's working remotely. So think about that. Like, they were probably a hundred percent giving me permission to, to fish their corporate lake. Um, but the entire company on the largest fashion empire in the world is just working remotely from yeah. home. And it's not like they're not putting out amazing products that are like, to me, like, Whoa, like, what is that shoe? What is it doing? Like, what is that? Like the space hippie? I was like, Oh my God. Like, that's, that's so cool. It's all made of trash and it's, um, it looks like I want to wear it. Um, it's, uh, and they're working from home. I mean, so all you have to do is just, you know, the pandemic forced us to reexamine how we work, but it should also force us to, to reexamine re how and where we spend our money. Absolutely. 
Totally. Because it's the power that we, it's the power that we have. It's well, yeah, that's exactly why I actually started this podcast was to kind of like you know pull down this the curtain that hides the behind the scenes of the fashion industry to the public and to show the public the diversity of how different fashion businesses might be different sizes and how their money affects everything that happens in in the world that you know more than you know it but that i'm gonna have to leave us at here because we're out of time right now that was a really awesome like high note to finish on them thank you so much david um thank you for those who want to check out banish how do they how do they look it up um our website is vanish.today um instagram is vanish.today we have vanish overland which is focused on um cars and trucks and fun things that drive across the planet um and then there's a lot of other channels launching soon we've got vanish angling um vanish home vanish footwear we're going to focus exclusively on on outdoor footwear um and just more and more content but vanish today is currently where we're at awesome well thanks so much david thank Hopefully you see you around the bend bye everybody yeah i, gotta, I want to come to france and fish yeah please do i'll um uh we'll we'll be fishing for carp or pike or perch pretty much the only three fish that <laughs> live in the the river system where i live but yeah it's super fun thanks man talk to you bye. soon bye